I'll be honest with all of you and let you know that the process of arriving at this sermon this morning has been very difficult. Uh, with the very first words of this scripture, we are confronted with a very uncomfortable topic, at least for me. Uh, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. The wrath of God. Uh, I'm not the only one who has difficulty coping with this, this aspect of God. William Barclay wrote, Here we come upon something which is difficult and which must give us seriously to think. The wrath of God. Surely this is an alarming and terrifying phrase. He goes on to note that even Martin Luther troubled over this. Luther spoke of God's love as God's own work. But he spoke of God's wrath as God's strange work. Barclay then writes, it is for the Christian mind a baffling thing. That's how this opens. And then towards the middle of what we will cover, this whole passage, we have a few sentences that have been wielded as weapons against those in the LGBTQ community and those of us who are allies. I haven't read that part yet because I want to preface it before we get there. And then this passage ends with what seems in some ways to nullify any attempt to try to apply any scripture to anyone at any time. Paul writes this in the first verse of chapter 2. Oh, you, therefore, man, woman, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. On top of all that, uh, in a moment we will celebrate Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And whenever we share in this, I try to shorten the sermons a little bit so that we can just kind of take our time through everything. And so I knew that I would have to try to show how our lives intersect, intersect with these very troubling scriptures and do it in fewer words than I normally use. Now, I don't know how successful I will be, uh, but it, this has been the dilemma. And so to put it in one sentence, here's what I came up with. Because of sin, we must always assess others and ourselves, but God is the only true judge of anyone. I'll say that again. Because of sin, we must always assess others and ourselves, but God is the only true judge of anyone. To get to that, I want to address these problem passages and issues in reverse order. So the first is this idea of whether to judge or not. As I said at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul writes that... Um, and the NIV leaves out a little bit. It's, it's uh, therefore, you, O oh man, O oh woman, 
have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For what at every point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you do these same things. By same things, Paul means this whole list of sinfulness that he had just outlined. This is in verses 29 through 31. Uh, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Pretty comprehensive list, right? Uh, it would be, I think, hard for any of us to maintain that we haven't done at least one of those things. In that section, Paul was talking specifically about people who didn't follow God in their lives uh, or certainly didn't profess to. Uh, he refers to them as pagans or uh, actually he, that group is the group that is referred to as they are the ones who do these things. But in the beginning of chapter 2, he switches to the pronoun you. He's been talking about they do these things and then he says, but you second person pronoun. Paul is referring at that point to people who claim to be people of God. All those who claim to follow God through Jesus Christ, whether from uh, a, back, uh, a Gentile background or a Jewish background. Paul knows that some of the folks that he's writing to who have been reading and hearing this part of the letter about what horrible pagans do, have been nodding their heads and saying, yeah, yeah, that's what they do. Those people are horrible. They deserve God's wrath. So they're nodding away. And these are the people of God who are thinking that because they themselves are part of the church, they won't be condemned for anything. They can pass judgment on others, but they will be, they are protected from judgment because of God. And it's to people with that mindset specifically that Paul continues in verse er, chapter 2 and writes, Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to whatever they have done. 
When Paul writes then, uh, you know, beware those of you who judge um, someone else for at whatever point you judge them, the others, you're condemning yourself. He's writing to people who think that they will escape God's judgment. He's writing to people with stubborn and unrepentant hearts. But what about people with repentant hearts? What about people who know God does judge? Are those people not allowed to look at murder, greed, arrogance, deceit, and think, that's not right? Are they not allowed to look at those things and not only think that's not right, but proclaim that's not right? Paul himself is doing that. That's what Paul is, is passing judgment on those people in these words. This brings up our gospel reading. Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. The traditional interpretation of this is that Christians shouldn't judge others. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says in that passage, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, your sister's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say, how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own and you basically aren't paying attention to that? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your sibling's eye. Similar to what Paul is doing, Jesus is speaking to people for whom judgment is only in one direction. Me judging someone else, but not judging myself, or at least not judging myself by the same standards that I judge others. But again, what if we do judge ourselves? What if we do know that greed is wrong and that my own greediness deserves condemnation? Am I then supposed to look at the grotesque consumption and hoarding by the 1% and just say, ah, whatever, mine's not to judge? No. The point that Paul is trying to make, which we will see him do even more through the weeks to come, is not that no one should be judged, but that everyone is judged by God. And by God's standards, no one lives exactly how, we, how God calls us to live. For Paul, this is the vital background that must be acknowledged in order to understand the gift of salvation and forgiveness and restoration that we have in Jesus Christ. This is the foundational understanding I received when I became a Christian in college. 
It was very much an evangelical community. And I knew through this that I was a broken, sinful human being, but also that God loved me. And in Jesus Christ, my life was healed and reconciled. And that all human beings are in the same boat. That is actually a beautiful truth and, and a wonderful thing to be able to share. But as the years rolled by, I began to notice that when a lot of evangelical leaders talked about sin, they tended to focus a lot, in fact, almost exclusively on sexual sin, particularly fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, pornography, and increasingly what they viewed as, home, as sin, homosexuality. I began to get really frustrated with the lack of concern for other sins that included far more of us. And that uh, I became acutely aware of the hypocrisy of severe condemnation rendered against sexual sins, those who did those, and the complete ignoring of a host of more pervasive sins. One of the primary scriptures that these evangelical, evangelical leaders would use to condemn homosexuality specifically is in our passage this morning. It's in verses 26 and 27. Because of this, all right, God gave them over to, the shame, to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. However, I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty bad. However, Paul bases at least part of his argument on this idea of natural relations, what is natural in the world. But Paul also uses that same reasoning in 1 Corinthians to say that men shouldn't have long hair. He writes in 1 Corinthians, Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it dishonors him? And yet, as Episcopalian priest Catherine Grieb notes, it's, it's the male lion who has the long hair. And it's the peacock who has the long, beautiful feathers. Grieve also points out that there are examples in nature of same-sex relations. So that's, it's okay to disagree with Paul when he says, isn't it, don't you agree that by nature it teaches us this? Eh, actually, Paul, not really. In addition, though, Paul does something very unusual when he writes about these relations that he considers unnatural. He doesn't use 
his usual words for men and women. And in fact, the NIV does us a disservice by saying men and women, because that implies adulthood. Paul uses the words that should be translated male and female. And sadly, the reason that I bring this up is because pedophilia was regularly practiced in Rome at the time. It was pervasive. If Paul had used his usual words for man and woman, men and women, it would pretty much rule out that this reference has anything to do with children. But his use of this, the simple biological terms, allows the possibility of pedophilia as being part of the unnatural relationships that he's talking about. Even if you don't buy all of that, even more clearly, Paul describes the relationships that he's talking about as being from and out of, inspired by and motivated by shameful lust or inflamed with lust. Any relationship based solely on lust is degrading of the other human. Any but any relationship. As Solomon Andrea, a Madagascan theologian, puts it, Paul narrows the scope of sinful desire to one particular example. And this is both for the female and the male in this example. The desire to possess the body of another to satisfy by one's own body. The other person's body is treated as nothing more than the source of pleasure. That is against what God has in mind for human beings. And he adds, uh, Paul does, or excuse me, Solomon Andrea does, he adds his thoughts on why Paul uses this interesting designation. To bring out the extent to which these lusts are driven by animal desires, he uses the strictly biological categories of male and female. I believe that Paul is not speaking at all of the type of loving same-sex relations that we have in our society today. But even if, and I, I'm saying it, even if, Paul was referring to same-sex relationships. For Paul to single out that as the worst sin imaginable is a blatant misrepresentation of his ultimate point. Paul begins by telling us the foundational sin that leads to everything impious and just that follows is the same thing that we hear in verses 20 through 23. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, men and women are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to God. But their thinking, and so their thinking, became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, and birds, and animals, and reptiles, idols for worship. This is 
the foundational problem, Paul says, for all of us. We have turned our backs on God. This is the same problem, the age-old problem that we heard Jeremiah speaking to God's people even centuries before. Has there ever been anything like this where a people changed their gods, even though they aren't gods? But my people have. Uh, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've turned from God to something of our own making. Again, Paul writes later in verse 25 this same thing. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. For Paul, that's the basis from which everything then falls apart. This turning away from God and looking to ourselves or something other than God for direction and purpose is what leads to all of the brokenness and hurt and ruin that Paul goes on to describe. Listen to Catherine Grebe, how she outlines Paul's thoughts. During Paul's time, Jewish ethical thought linked Adam and Eve, uh, their disobedience with idolatry, and assumed that sexual immorality was the logical consequence of idolatry. But further, the logic of Paul's argument is that the most dramatic sins described appear at the end of the list. In his view, sexual immorality is a warning light that signals the moral chaos to come, the even, in that sense, even worse. Finally, in the phrase in verse 32, those who practice such things deserve to die, Paul refers to everything in his long list of vices, that one that I I read to you about vice and greed and deceit and all those things. Paul's referring to all of those gossip. That's not something that evangelical leaders do not preach a whole lot on, is that gossip is worthy of death according to the scriptures. So if you're going to say something, be consistent. So Paul is saying that this whole list of things is part of us gone wrong. Um, And plus all those things that Paul does not mention, which are the way our representative examples of. uh, He he writes, such things are worthy of death, not these things specifically. Rather than, she she finishes, rather than only to sexual sin, which is, in Paul's view, a sign of more serious moral shipwreck ahead. So to focus on any one or even any one type of sin that Paul lists here as the bad one is to distort Paul's writing. His point is that each of us, every single one of us in our own ways, turn our back on God or have turned our back on God and God's ways. And that has led every single one of us to hurt others and ourselves. Every one of us. In fact, all of that hurt that we cause one another 
is essentially the content of God's wrath, God's judgment on us. Three times in this passage, Paul writes what God has done because of our impiety and injustice. In verse 24, For although they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to God. Um, oh, that's 21. Excuse me. <laughs> Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to their sinful desires. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. God's wrath is essentially letting us suffer the consequences of our choices. I like the way William Barclay writes about this. Paul speaks frequently of this idea of wrath, but the strange thing is that although Paul speaks of the wrath of God, he never speaks of God being angry. Paul speaks of God abandoning or giving over men and women to themselves, essentially. But Barclay writes, that word abandon has no angry irritation in it. Indeed, its main note is not even condemnation and judgment. Its main note is a wistful, sorrowful regret as of a lover. In the coming weeks, we will hear again Paul proclaim that all human beings have, fin have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Paul writes this, though, because he knows that unless we apply this to ourselves, we won't appreciate the gift of God's love in Jesus Christ. The whole point is that all of us need God's forgiveness. And God offers it. Sadly, though, in my years as a pastor, so many leaders of the church in the United States have spoken out so loudly against sexual sins, as they understand them, that the far more numerous sins that the vast majority of us are involved in have been almost completely ignored by the church. And our society has been demeaned because of that. To not judge someone's actions is not the same as ignoring them. Because sin exists, we must constantly assess, if you want to call it that, rather than judgment, we must constantly assess and work against sin in the world. But that includes all sin and all sinners, including ourselves. The good news in all of this is that the one who actually judges us as a true judge is God. The one who not only assesses our actions, but pronounces our sentence, is the same one who loves us, forgives us, and reconciles us in Jesus Christ. Because sin exists, we have to assess others and ourselves. But God is the only one who truly judges anyone.
Thanks. Be